listening to First Church Charlotte. But you know what? We have church anyway. <laughs> Praise the Lord, somebody. Put your hands together. Give God a hand clap of praise in this house. We bless your name, Lord Jesus. We exalt you today. We commit this service to your hand. We ask that your word would live in this house. We ask that it would speak to us, that we would grow from the consideration of it, that we would reflect upon the spiritual majesty of it, that we would be changed by the word of God. We need it. We need to eat the whole roll as the Old Testament prophet was instructed. So let the word of God speak to us in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray and let the church say amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, I want to real quick just welcome all of you who are here today. Um, we have uh, daylight savings time and we have like 40 degrees outside and raining. So uh, on days like that, you don't have a church service. What you have is a saints meeting. <laughs> and so all of you are at home. I, I made a 50-50 on the saints part. I, I don't know. It got you. So no, just teasing. Uh, you're home. You're comfortable. You're tucked in. I'm a little bit mad at you. Uh, I didn't want to come either. I told my wife, I'm not going. You can't make me. She said, you have to go. I said, I'm not going. You can't make me. Finally, I said, why should I go? She said, because you're the preacher. And so that's that's how I ended up here today. We love you all. God bless you. We want God to have a rich, powerful impact upon your life today. I want to encourage you, if you're watching this, don't just click it off or change to another uh, YouTube channel or Facebook stream, whatever you're doing. Uh, after uh, you've watched, uh, somehow set aside some time to, to reflect or talk if you're with someone or pray together. Make it spiritual. It's not just information. It's also in our heart. And so, all right, enough nagging at the online audience. God bless you. We love you. Um, I am going to direct your attention today to a passage of scripture. This is Genesis 6 chapter, excuse me, chapter number 6, verse number 5, and we will read together uh, this passage. Uh, my title today is It's a Cover-Up. It's a cover-up. Before we read, I want to invite any of you who are at all interested in our sister congregation in Concord, North Carolina. Uh, the church is located on Reuben Linker Road, right off of Weddington Road, which is right by, it's literally between the racetrack and uh, Concord Mills, so it's a, easy to find uh, once you look for Reuben Linker Road. Um, I want to, if any of you are interested, uh, just to know what's going on there, the service is at two o'clock. You're welcome to be a part of that. Uh, we are in the process of integrating our lives together and becoming uh, one church in two different locations. And so I just want you to feel free in that regard. Uh, chapter six, verse five, book of Genesis. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry. I am sorry that I have made them. Verse eight, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I I want to uh, talk today about one of the most foundational, powerful uh, theologies in all the Word of God, and that is the theology of grace, understanding how God has made a way for us to have real spiritual relationship uh, with Him. Uh, I know you've been around church enough to have heard preaching on grace, uh, but I, I want you to not just be able to have a vague sense of it. A vague sense is something that you kind of know, but have a difficulty sharing. Um, You kind of know it. It's vague enough for you to kind of feel like you know it, but you struggle to share it because it's too vague. The advantage of really holding your feet to the fire, really drilling down and getting to know something is that when time comes for you to communicate it, the words are ready at hand and the concept is able to be given with clarity. How can we testify of God's grace in our life if we struggle to put it into uh, communicable language, uh, an easy understanding. So uh, on this day when uh, the weather has and the time calendar has conspired to let us have a saints meeting, uh, I want to make sure that we are strong in our uh, understanding and foundations of grace. Um, I am aware of something, as you are, that we live in an age of heightened, uh, radicalized politics where one side is not interested in finding common ground with the other side. Both sides are interested in kind of owning each other, shaming each other, embarrassing each other, doing the best they can to make the other person look bad. This is, in many ways, a result of this unique unique stage of society and more importantly, technology. I don't want to spend time on this in this 11 o'clock service, but uh, our technology of social media and instant news has conspired uh, to create a society that tends toward radicalization. Uh, The loudest voice gets paid attention to. The angriest commentator gets FaceTime. And this is, of course, not to the health of our society. There is a reason why there's so much anger, so much rage. There is a reason why there's so much uh, willingness to harm one another with both our words and also our actions. And let me just sum it up by saying this. What we need is a revival of real Christianity. real Christianity, Jesus, and that path of denying self and choosing to make a broken world whole by the giving of yourself, Jesus's way is still the answer for a broken world. And Jesus's love is still the source of hope for a world of malevolent intent. It's possible today to even find malevolence in the church where people who say they've been changed by the love 
of God can only breathe out threatenings and warnings and hatred uh, to other people. This should not be, my brothers and my sisters. Christ showed us a way. And he said to turn away from serving yourself, first of all. Secondly, find a cross of missional purpose. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. It is missional purpose. And then go forth to make a broken world whole. You can't carry his cross. He carried that cross for you. But the lesson is established. In the same manner, he carried your cross for you. You carry his cross, which is purpose. What did he come for? To seek and to save the lost. He had no sin for you to carry. He carried your sin. What do we carry? We carry his purpose. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do you see? All right. So uh, we take up our purpose and we go out to make a broken world less broken. Uh, We do not do that when we are part of the brokenness of the world. That's why healing starts at the house of the Lord. Both physical, but more importantly, spiritual, mental, psychological. Healing starts at the house of the Lord. If your only way to cope with circumstances in your life is to talk bad about other people, you need healing. Do you hear what I said? If the only thing you can do to make your burden lighter is to make someone else's burden heavier, you need healing. If the only thing you can do to feel better about your purpose and calling is to reign or throw shade on somebody else's purpose and calling. You need healing. Healing looks like this. God's done so much for me. Why can I be angry or hateful toward anyone else? He brought me from so far. When I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I want to speak real spiritual, psychological, mental healing over this house in Jesus' name. And can some church folks say amen? Let healing begin in the house of the Lord. Let it begin in our hearts, oh God. Don't let us carry secret burdens and secret pains that we take out of our closets ever so often or our our trophy cases of misery and brag one to another what we've gone through in some kind of reverse attention-getting effort. But let us be healed, Lord. Let us rise to a point of strength where yesterday's insults are forgotten. We don't have to cope with them. They're forgotten. We move beyond what another says. We move beyond pleasing humanity and we seek to know you. You are our healing. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So back to my message here today. It's uh, the sign of the times that uh, everybody is accusing the person they don't like of wrongdoing and cover-up. So in light of this uh, fun I'm having uh, as a communication tool with cover-ups, I thought I would give you a formula on how you too can uh, cover up something you've done wrong. If you'd like to write this down, it will serve you well uh, in your life. This is how you perpetrate a cover-up. Number one, just start with a flat denial. I did not steal your chocolate chip cookie. I am, I would never steal your chocolate chip cookie. After you've done that, convince 
the somebody to bury the story. You go to someone talking about it and saying, look, would you please stop telling people about the chocolate chip cookie that I stole? If that doesn't work, what you do is you uh, dis- uh, distribute false information. Uh, we don't know who is stealing cookies around here, but there are some serious cookie thieves in this church. If that doesn't work, well, then you switch gears and you just say that the problem is minimal. Even if a cookie was stolen, it was just one cookie, which isn't so bad. Everybody steals one cookie. If that doesn't work, what you claim is a false memory. I I have no memory of this event that you're referring to whereby a aforementioned cookie went mysteriously missing. Uh, I I don't remember that, your honor. Then you can claim that it's a half truth. Are you sure a whole cookie went missing? Maybe it was just half a cookie that went missing. Then you switch from uh, that to proof. You have no proof that I stole a cookie from you. Then you attack their motives. You're probably the real cookie thief, and you're probably just trying to put attention on me. And finally, when you can't do that, you attack their character. People have been knowing that you're the worst cookie thief at First Church. How dare you call me a cookie thief? That's how you perpetrate a cover-up. Now, if you saw anyone taking notes, you need to watch out for them because... uh, (laughs) You know how it goes. Let me cut through the cover-up, and let's talk, stop talking about the cover-up of politics, the cover-up of cookie thieving, and let's talk about the real problem of our, of our existence, and that is there is a vast gulf separating the sin and self-willed, self-serving lusts of humanity from the righteousness and the goodness of Almighty God. Sin has separated us from the presence of God. Will God give up on you because you are a sinner or will he fight to the last breath to make a way for you to be saved? What does God do in the face of a problem like this? This is the great problem at work in the story of humankind and that is the difference between the righteous judgment of God and the self-serving banal evil of humanity. This is the original separation. This is how a world of perfection and order is broken. And this is how we end up with every sin, every murder, every lie, every rape, every genocide, every story whereby an individual created a deception whereby they could do what they had already and always wanted to do to you and justify their choice thus sin entered the world. Does God give up on us in that reality? What does God do with the imperfect? That is the essential question of the progressive revelation of God through the scripture. What does God do with broken people? How long does God work to reach you? How far will he go? How far down will a nail-scarred hand reach to save you? Grace, my brother, my sister, is the story of how God fixes the problem of evil. Grace, if you forget everything else I say, remember this, grace is the story of how God fixes the mess of us.
We cannot fix our own mess. We read the story of Noah and him finding grace in uh, the eyes of the Lord. Uh, There was potential in the being that God created and placed in a garden. We were not like an animal trapped in instinct and reaction. We were a thinking being in the image of God with the ability to think, to reason, to choose, to submit ourselves or deceive ourselves, to serve God or serve self, to join justice or to ally with rebellion. We were all of these things. That is why it was more than speaking us into existence. That was why God gave us a piece of himself. He breathed his essence into us. And if you don't understand that small deification, that small gift of sovereignty, that small anointing of image of God, you are a creator. You can create worlds into being. They can be worlds of good or worlds of evil. You, like God, are one who creates. What will you do with what God has given you? And we live our lives every day answering that question, what kind of a world will I create? My life can be a blessing. My life can be a curse. What kind of a world will I create? And so uh, this is how God can be surprised by the choices, not the potential. God knew everything. God, like uh, quantum physics expressed where all possible worlds exist within the synchronized spinning of every atom and God as in infinite could play all possible worlds in a deified version of parallel possibilities why would he be surprised not at the potential but at the choices we could have done many things with what we were given you chose to do that I could imagine, I could perceive, I can uh, think of you doing many things with what you've been given. You've chosen to do that. That's how an infinite God, seeing all possible worlds, all possible expressions of uh, the spin of a quantum universe, and it exists as a quantum foam, always emerging into uh, each moment. He could see all possibles, and he's surprised by your choices not your potential. I know I'm off on the deep end whenever I mention quantum physics. Don't be mistaken. I do not understand quantum physics. And if one tells you they do, if they're not like six people alive, one of those, they don't either. So moving along. (laughs) Um, It broke God's heart. It was always there. Our potential for evil. It was always there. But we chose it. I think one of the hardest things for a parent is to know a child. Forgive me for saying this. I'm glad all our kids are out. Well, for the most part, our kids are out. Um, let me say this. I think one of the hardest heartbreaking things of a parent is that deep fear that we can have, that having known a child through the sweet years, you know those sweet years where they think you're a superhero, you can do anything wrong, and then they go into the great abyss of parental suffering, also known as the teen years. And all of a sudden, you're a, you're, 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 you awaken to a fear you didn't realize that you had. And that was the fear that I may not know who they're choosing to become. I knew them when we were playing hide and seek around the house. I knew them when we were watching Winnie the Pooh together. But who are they becoming? That's 
That's the fear. That's the heartbreak. That's the surprise in the heart of God, not the potential, but the choices. And so uh, it broke his heart, what they had done with what he had given them. And uh, here comes the reality of the conflict between the justice of God and the rebellion, self-serving sinfulness of uh, the sinner. And the Lord um, observes that the whole earth is only evil continually, only evil continually. This breaks God's heart. And uh, so here becomes the uh, essential question um, of the uh, moment. What does God do with that which he cannot bear to look at? What does God do with that which he cannot bear to look at. The problem is always a heart issue. Uh, This is shown, I think, best in Matthew 15, where Jesus has a direct confrontation with scribes and Pharisees. And this is not uncommon in the Gospels, but I think it comes to an apex here in Matthew 15. And uh, they accuse Jesus of disobeying and transgressing the law in uh, ceremonial ways by not washing their hands before they eat bread. They're walking through a field. They're just pulling... uh, uh, the, the heads of the wheat off. Um, he he answers and he points out that if they're worried about a transgression, why, why can they only see the transgression of the disciples? Why can't they see their own transgression? And he points out in verses uh, three and four that they have found a legalistic way to get out of the commitment of taking care of their parents, thus defying uh, the command, the principle to honor your father and your mother. Uh, and now they have found a legal legalistic way where they don't have to do that, uh, but they're not willing to see their own transgression. This is always the case with all of us religious people. It's much easier to see another person's transgression than it is to see our own transgression. Um, you have, he says in uh, verse number six, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Oh, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw nigh to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. And here's the essential issue of all Pharisees everywhere. Matthew 15, verse number nine, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If you understand that, verse nine, Chapter 15, book of Matthew, you won't understand everything you need to know about how the Pharisees go wrong. Verse number 10, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Uh, Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Uh, Of course they were. Jesus is flying exactly in the face of their law of ceremonial eating, Uh, what they they eat and what they don't eat. It's the same thing that's going to happen on the rooftop to Peter. Uh, the Lord wants to introduce them to something more important than a formula of obedience. He wants to introduce them to a heart of worship. Yes. You see, the, the formula, the calculus of righteousness is missing the, po- the point if your heart is not seeking. It's what's in your heart, what you choose. 
the world you create, the way you walk, the self-justifications you make, the manner in which you uh, seek to live in a type of religious pretense rather than a spiritual falling on your face saying, God, I must serve you. I must please you. I must know you. Peter answered and said, uh, well, let me back up. Jesus answered and said, every plant which my father has, my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. This is Jesus telling you how to deal with Pharisees. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, are you also, like the Pharisees, still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart, it's a heart problem, guys. It's a heart problem. Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Uh, I, I want you to see, I want you to understand the point of all of this is not simply a correction of the Pharisees' overzealous interpretation of an Old Testament scripture because that's always how Pharisees go wrong. They're overzealously interpreting an Old Testament or Old Covenant scripture. It started with good intentions, but it ends with control. It starts with good intentions, but it ends with status. It starts with good intentions, but it ends with shut up and do what I say. This is the error of all of them. And so they end up giving a tradition as what? Doctrine. Now, uh, what's wrong with this? What is the error in this, in this moment? The problem is of the heart, not of a calculus of observances. I, I, I want to say this. Everything we do unto the Lord succeeds or fails at the level of worship. Everything we do is worship unto the Lord, and God is seeking such true worshipers to uh, worship him in spirit and in in truth. And so I want you to see this problem of uh, whether or not we are really serving God or whether we're religious. <laughs> now, this applies to all of us because we all are known in our respective communities as religious, and uh, that's not a bad thing by any means unless that's all we're known for. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the organization we make among ourselves. There's nothing wrong with the efforts we make to kind of have a general, uh, humble uh, consensus on uh, biblical clarity and the like. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it ends with that, we have a system of works and not a system of worship. A system of works glorifies the worker, and a system of worship glorifies the creator. Let me try again on this side of the church. A system of works glorifies the worker, and a system of worship glorifies the creator. I want to be a worshiper. Do I have any worshipers in this house? <laughs> 
And so this is the reality of uh, God's work of grace. It is of no accomplishment of our heart, no accomplishment of our life, but it is absolutely how God cleans up our sin and transgression. And so this is the world to which Noah is born, and this is the world to which God talks to Noah and gives him a path, uh, a way of escape. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and the rain begins to fall. You got to preach on Noah on a rainy Sunday, right? And the rain begins to fall, and the waters begin to rise. The rain came down in the... Mm, I got some support over here. Praise God. The rains came down and the... The rain came down and the... But... Different song. What House on the Rock Stood Firm, I think is how the song goes. I was using it for Noah. That's preacher license right there. Um, and so uh, the water came up. The water came up, and uh, it answers this question. What does, what does God do with what he cannot bear to look at? Here is the answer. He covers it. What does God do with what he cannot bear to look at? He covers it. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 gives us this very interesting moment in the scripture. I, I know most of you probably don't spend a whole lot of time reading from Deuteronomy. Like, for example, in early prayer, when I find some scripture to open the prayer meeting with, I never turn to the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> I'm always in Psalms and J Job and I, that beautiful text of the prophets and the gospels. And uh, I never turn to Deuteronomy. Uh, let me read some Deuteronomy to you. For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he sees no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. Now, you would, if you wanted to be a, a good uh, holiness, uh, have a good holiness sermon, you could preach this, and at the end of the sermon, you could get everybody lined up and straightened up, and pretty soon everybody who wasn't perfect is leaving the church wondering whether or not they really should be a part of that church because uh, they're far from holy and they got a lot of work to do. But uh, although this scripture is great for that purpose, I want to point out something rather interesting here. It's not actually talking about that kind of holiness. What it's talking about is that all the children of Israel have to have a shovel and they cannot leave. Are you ready for this? This is some deep theology. They cannot leave their latrines uncovered. I got a word for you. If you're going to mess, I better cover that mess up. Somebody say that's deep. In other words, dig it deep and cover it up. Think in advance. Um, what is the point here? There is a... Uh, a way that uh, the people of Israel are asked to live. And even in simple things, they have and they should live as though God is among them. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And even in simple things, they should live as though God is among them. For the Lord walketh in the midst of thy camp. So cover that mess up. Now, I'm going to, in just a moment, uh, surprise some of you with a scriptural conundrum, but out of this is going to come a great 
illustration on how our sins, how our errors, how our mistakes are covered, a right way and a wrong way to do it. He will not look upon a wicked thing, that he see no wicked thing, one translation says, uh, what we read in, that he see no unclean thing. God will not look upon uh, the wicked thing, which leaves us at a type of spirit conundrum, which is this. I know I've made a mess. What do I do with my mess? Two different passages give us a spiritual tension that always hides profound spiritual truth. When you read the Bible, oftentimes you look at the right hand of God and you look at the left hand of God and his reach is broader than your understanding. And so when God speaks, it is almost as though there is a tension, a contradiction. There is both grace and truth. There is both mercy and judgment. Uh, And we strain to encompass the reach of God's uh, commitment, covenant, and interaction with us. On one hand, we read Psalms 32 and 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, uh, and say this with me, whose sin is covered. Thank you for covering our sin, O God. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, I'm going to read another passage that If this is God working on the right hand, I'm going to read another passage, which is God working on the left hand. He who covers his transgression, Proverbs 28, 13, he who covers his transgression will not prosper. We're left with this tension, this infinite divine heavenly reach between two pillars of God's power, personality, and promise. On one hand, we're blessed when our transgressions are covered. On the other hand, we're uh, not blessed. We're living in error and folly. We will not prosper if we try to cover our own transgressions. Uh, Let me uh, uh, phrase this contradiction to you slightly different. Uh, Let me say it like this. Do you think your goodness is enough to save you? Do you think your accomplishment is enough to put God in your debt? Where you don't have to ask yourself, is the Lord pleased? Because now you feel God owes you salvation. This is the risk of the Pharisee. I'm so good, I don't have to worry about it. My only job now is not pleasing God, but purifying God's people. The person who purifies others is beyond their own sense of, am I right? And on one hand, you have a Pharisee or a scribe who their job, they believe, because they have found a formula of righteousness, their job is not to seek God, but enforce the formula. And here is Jesus saying, let me tell you what you ought to worry about. You ought to worry about your heart. Because your heart is much more deceptive than your systems of righteousness. And you can have a form of godliness but have no relationship with the God you are claiming godliness of. 
I want to say to every one of you, you need a prayer life. You need to call upon the name of the Lord. Can I have a big amen? You need to seek his face. You need to repent and say, God, I'm here again today. I'm as I have just as much potential for error as I ever had, so I'm calling on you. Take my hand, oh God, and lead me into a promised land. <laughs> what does God do what he can, with what he cannot bear to look at? God covers it up. The rain came down and the flood came up. God covers what he cannot bear to look at. And so Paul answers this question in his tremendous uh, treatise on faith and justification by faith and how salvation came uh, at the very beginning to Abraham before circumcision. He's writing to a, a Jewish church at this time, largely the Jewish church is larger than the Gentile church and the tension in the church is whether or not Gentile could be accepted. And he points out to them, look, the Lord uh, brought Abraham into covenant before circumcision. Circumcision was later. Circumcision became a sign, but it was not the covenant. It was a sign of the covenant. And when you make a sign the same thing as the covenant, you exclude a lot of people. Right. And you're trying to exclude all that God is doing among the Gentiles because you have equated a sign to a covenant. Abraham was accepted by God long before he was circumcised. What was the differentiating thing? What was the act of divine approval with which Abraham was received the covenant? What then shall we say? Chapter four, verse number one. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has a found according to the flesh? Verse two, for if Abraham was justified works he ha by works he has something to boast about but not before God for what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness where did it all begin in his heart he had no calculus of righteousness yet but in his heart he's seeking God he had no formula for pleasing God yet but in his heart he's seeking to know God it's from the heart that we bless or curse it's from the heart that we either bless God or defile the world in which we are we are placed. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works. The wages are not counted as grace but debt. Hence the problem of the Pharisee. They no longer seek in fear and trembling to check their heart if they're right. Now they are fruit inspectors of other people's fruit because they no longer, having attained a imitation righteousness, they no longer need God, but now God needs them. Uh, let's continue reading. 
But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, Paul is going to reach back to that scripture we read together, Psalms 34, verse number one. Blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and notice, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does does not impute sin. Let me end up as our musicians come by saying this. We think of cover-ups as bad things, but in the economy of grace, the best thing that can happen to you is God to cover up your sin. Because the truth is, are you ready for this? You really did steal that chocolate chip cookie. You tried to blame someone else. You tried to say the devil made me do it. But you're the one who ate that chocolate chip cookie. You stole it. You dreamt about it. You planned your approach. You snatched on the fly and gobbled like a very demon of hell. A demonic turkey. You gobbled that cookie right down your throat. You did it. Thou art the man. You have a sin problem. Somebody say, that's me. You have a sin problem. What do we do with your sin problem? If you try to cover it up, it's not going to prosper. What you need is a spiritual community where you can confess it one to another. You need a spiritual community where you can have spiritual mentors in your life. Quit trying to please God on your own. You weren't created to please God on your own. You were created to be placed in a spiritual community. Find a spiritual community. Confess your sins one to another. Stop being your own Calvary. You are not a spotless lamb. Find some spiritual authenticity. Come into the house of God. Don't look around and see who doesn't belong there. Don't figure out what you know about somebody. Ignore them. Seek God's heart with your heart and say, I've got to know you, O oh Lord. I, everything, I'm imperfect. Everything I offer is, is, is just worship because it's not a calculus of salvation. I can never be good enough. It's just worship. Whether I do it right or I do it not quite as good as my grandma did it. Whatever it is, it's an offering unto the Lord, and I pour myself out. Can you do something with this mess? And God himself is like, I don't know if I can do anything with that mess, but let me tell you what I know I can do with that mess. I can cover it up. Mercy is God covering the reality of my heart with the righteous blood of innocence and purity so that excuse me demonic pollen so that when judgment comes for me it stands on the edge of the sea and says I'm sure there's stuff down there but all I can see is a sunset. I'm sure there's transgression down there, but if it wasn't for the stupid water. One of the reasons, are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this. I'm about to lay it on you. Some of you guys, you're about to get, about to get a blessing. One of the reasons why we baptize with full immersion is we want the sins to be 
what God can't bear to look at. What God can't bear to look at. I said what God can't bear to look at. Stand with me all over the house. Lift your hands in the sanctuary. Oh God, we give you praise. Everything I am, I give to you. The good of me, the bad of me, I give it to you. The stuff I've done well with, the stuff I haven't done well with, I give it to you. I wonder if there's somebody here who you would step out of the chair you're in right now and you'd come down to this front, you'd lift your hands as you come as a symbolic gesture and you'd say, everything I have, I give it to you. Would you like to move right now? Would you like, we're gonna have a prayer service here, but I'd like to start by let's all making a, a unified act here together of surrender to God. Everything I have. You don't have to come. If you wanna stay, you can, but I'd like to invite everyone who will. Everything I have. If, if, if there's someone here, you want to start a new day in God, I want you to either come to the front or right where you are, lift your hands and say, everything I have, I give to you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, everything I have. Come on, we need some unity of the spirit here today. Everything I have, everything I've done, everything I should have done and didn't do, everything I did do and shouldn't have done, Come on, let's let the Spirit begin to move in this house right now. I give it, I surrender it, I lay it down, I cast it into a sea of forgetfulness. I don't want to pull it out. I don't want to somehow try to multiply it in my own conscience. I want it to be covered by the blood of Jesus. I said I want it to be covered by the blood of Jesus. Satan, you're a liar. You're talking about stuff that no one can see anymore. I've been covered by the blood. I've been washed by the blood. I've been filled with the Spirit. God has covered me. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.